0: We continue with the opinion of the court in Jones v. Hendricks. Part 3 Resisting this reading, Jones and the United States both argue that section 2255H's exclusion of statutory claims sometimes renders section 2255 inadequate or ineffective, though they advance different theories of when and why it does so their arguments are unpersuasive. Section A. Jones begins with a textual interpretation of the saving clause that, if accepted, would convert Section 2255E into a license for unbounded error correction. He argues that Section 2255 is necessarily inadequate or ineffective to test a prisoner's claim if the Section 2255 Court fails to apply the correct substantive law. This argument ignores that the saving clause is concerned with the adequacy or effectiveness of the remedial vehicle, the remedy by motion, not any court's asserted errors of law. Even when circuit law is inadequate or deficient because a court of appeals's precedents have resolved a legal issue incorrectly, that is not a fault in the section 2255 remedial vehicle itself. Next, Jones offers a wide-ranging discussion of the concept of inadequacy as a term of art in traditional equity jurisprudence. While Jones demonstrates that courts of equity would afford relief from inadequate legal remedies in a broad range of circumstances, we find this excursus irrelevant to the question presented here. To the extent that Congress's use of inadequate in the saving clause harkens back to equity's historic use of that term, an issue we need not address— The most Jones's evidence proves is that a variety of circumstances might make it impracticable for a prisoner to seek relief from the sentencing court. Nothing in Jones's survey of equity jurisprudence, however, even begins to suggest that the saving clause offers an exemption from AEDPA's clear limits on second or successive collateral attacks. Trying a different tack, Jones suggests that the saving clause's use of the present tense is inadequate or ineffective, means that section 2241 is available whenever a prisoner is presently unable to file a section 2255 motion. Even the circuits with an expansive view of the saving clause have uniformly rejected this argument, and for good reason. Were this argument accepted, AEDPA's changes to Section 2255 would be entirely futile, as Section 2241 would be available any time the second or successive restrictions precluded relief. We decline to infer that Congress intended AEDPA's carefully crafted limits on collateral relief under Section 2255 to be mere nullities. As a backstop to his scattershot textual arguments, Jones invokes the constitutional doubt canon, arguing that denying him the chance to raise his rehive claim in a section 2241 petition raises serious constitutional questions. It does not. Jones's primary constitutional argument is that denying him any opportunity to seek post-conviction relief based on rehife would violate the suspension clause, which provides that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when, in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. U.S. Constitution, Article I, Section 9, Clause 2. This suspension clause argument fails because it would extend the writ of habeas corpus far beyond its scope when the Constitution was drafted and ratified. When the suspension clause was adopted and for a long time afterward, Jones's rehife claim would not have been cognizable in habeas at all. At the founding, a sentence after conviction by a court of competent jurisdiction was in itself sufficient cause for a prisoner's continued detention. As Chief Justice Marshall explained in the seminal case of Ex parte Watkins, the criminal judgment, in its nature, concluded the subject on which it was rendered, pronounced the law of the case, and put an end to the inquiry concerning fact. Of particular relevance here a habeas court had no power to look beyond the judgment to re-examine the charges on which it was rendered for substantive errors of law, even if the sentencing court had misconstrued the law and had pronounced an offense to be punishable criminally, which was not so. In rebuttal, Jones argues that pre-founding practice did allow habeas courts to look beyond the judgment to ensure that the convicting court had proved every element of the crime for which a prisoner was committed. But Jones fails to identify a single clear case of habeas being used to relitigate a conviction after a trial by a court of general criminal jurisdiction. Rather, the cases he cites mostly involve commitments by justices of the peace, a distinction reflected in Watkins itself. As such, their commitments were not placed on the same high ground with the judgments of a court of record, and the fact that superior courts sometimes used habeas to examine commitments by such inferior magistrates furnishes no authority for inquiring into the judgments of a court of general criminal jurisdiction. Jones also appeals to Bushel's case from 1670, which has long been understood as a case about the independence of criminal juries in determining questions of fact. There, a judge fined and imprisoned the members of a jury for acquitting William Penn and William Meade on indictments for assembling unlawfully and tumultuously, a verdict ostensibly against the manifest evidence. A juror refused to pay the fine, applied to the Court of Common Pleas for a writ of habeas corpus, and obtained discharge in an opinion by Chief Justice Vaughan. Jones points to one part of Vaughn's opinion, which criticized the return of the writ for not specifying that the jurors knew and believed the evidence to be full and manifest against the indicted persons, without which the juror's verdict was no cause of fine or imprisonment. Jones asks us to read this passage as reflecting a supposed common law rule that habeas relief was available whenever a convicting court had not found the necessary mens rea of a crime. That reading, however, entirely misses the actual basis of Vaughn's opinion— which was the judge's absolute want of power to question the jury's determination of the facts. Thus, Bushell's case no more undermines Watkins than do the Justice of the Peace cases. The principles of Watkins guided this court's understanding of the habeas writ through the 19th century and well into the 20th. Even in Ex parte Siebold, 1880, which held that the constitutionality of a prisoner's statute of conviction could be reviewed on habeas, the court acknowledged Watkins and took pains to reconcile its holding with the traditional rule. And when asked to review convicting courts substantive errors of statutory law in habeas corpus proceedings, this court consistently held that it could not do so. It was not until 1974, in Davis, that the court broke with that tradition, holding for the first time that a substantive error of statutory law could be a cognizable ground for a collateral attack on a federal court's criminal judgment. The suspension clause does not constitutionalize that innovation of nearly two centuries later nor a fortiori does it require the extension of that innovation to a second or successive collateral attack jones's remaining constitutional arguments are no more persuasive he argues that denying him a new opportunity for collateral review of his rehife claim threatens separation of powers principles specifically congress's exclusive power to define crimes but the authority to determine the facts and the law in an individual case and to render a final binding judgment based on those determinations stands at the core of the judicial power. A court does not usurp legislative power simply by misinterpreting the law in a given case. Next, Jones points to Fiore v. White, 2001, per curiam, which applied the rule that due process requires that the prosecution prove every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Whether a due process error has occurred at trial, however, is an entirely different issue from Congress's power to restrict collateral review. Due process does not guarantee a direct appeal, let alone the opportunity to have legal issues redetermined in successive collateral attacks on a final sentence. Jones's last constitutional contention that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments may entitle him to another round of collateral review fails for a similar reason. By its terms, the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause expresses a substantive constraint on the kinds of punishments governments may inflict, it creates no freestanding entitlement to a second or successive round of post-conviction review, and thus it adds nothing to Jones's unavailing suspension clause argument. Section B. The government agrees with the Eighth Circuit that Jones is not entitled to relief But somewhat surprisingly, it asks us to adopt a novel, alternative interpretation of the Saving Clause, which it constructs via a roundabout argument. It begins with the premise that the words inadequate or ineffective imply reference to a benchmark of adequacy and effectiveness. It proceeds to identify that benchmark as the ability to test the types of claims cognizable under the general habeas statutes specifically those governing federal habeas petitions by state prisoners. The government then reasons that Section 2255H's limitations on second or successive motions, asserting newly discovered evidence or new rules of constitutional law, do not trigger the saving clause, because Congress has imposed analogous limitations on analogous claims by state prisoners and by doing so, has redefined Section 2255E's implicit habeas benchmark with respect to such factual and constitutional claims. Since, the government asserts, Congress has imposed no analogous limitation on statutory claims by state prisoners, it has not redefined the implicit habeas benchmark with respect to statutory claims like Jones's and we should be unwilling to infer that AEDPA limited such claims without a clearer textual indication. The government concludes that Section 2255H renders Section 2255 inadequate or ineffective to test a federal prisoner's statutory claim in cases where the prisoner has already filed one Section 2255 motion and the claim otherwise satisfies pre-AEDPA habeas principles, which generally will require a colorable showing of factual innocence. This elaborate theory is no more convincing than Jones's arguments. Its most striking flaw is the seemingly arbitrary linkage it posits between the saving clause and state prisoners' statutory post-conviction remedies. While it is true that Section 2255, as enacted, afforded the same rights federal prisoners previously enjoyed under the general habeas statutes, nothing in Section 2255's text, structure, or history suggests that Congress intended any part of it to implicitly cross-reference whatever modifications to state prisoners' post-conviction remedies might be made in the future. Understanding the saving clause to do so would have highly counterintuitive implications. On the government's view, Sections 2255H, 1, and 2 do not create an adequacy or effectiveness problem only because of the parallel state prisoner provisions in Section 2244B. It seems to follow that if Congress relaxed Section 2244B's second or successive restrictions for state prisoners tomorrow and did nothing else, Section 2255 would suddenly become inadequate or ineffective to test at least some second or successive fact-based claims that did not satisfy Section 2255H1 or constitutional claims that did not satisfy Section 2255H2 and that those claims would then be allowed to proceed under section 2241. We see no indication that the spare language of the saving clause creates such a Rube Goldberg contrivance, whereby changes to other statutory provisions, which do not apply to federal prisoners at all, could flow back into section 2255 and undermine section 2255H. In any event, as the government acknowledges, a state prisoner could never bring a pure statutory error claim in federal habeas because federal habeas corpus relief does not lie for errors of state law. As a result, it is unclear what work the government's state prisoner habeas benchmark is even doing in its answer to the question presented here. Rather, the narrow base on which the government's top-heavy theory ultimately turns out to rest is its assertion that Section 2255H is simply not clear enough to support the inference that Congress entirely closed the door on pure statutory claims not brought in a federal prisoner's initial Section 2255 motion. That assertion is unpersuasive for the reasons we have already explained. Section 2255H specifies the two circumstances in which a second or successive collateral attack on a federal sentence is available, and those circumstances do not include an intervening change in statutory interpretation. The government asserts that we require the clearest command before construing AEDPA to close the courthouse doors on a strong, equitable claim for relief. The only two cases the government relies on for its clear statement rule do not sweep as broadly as it suggests. In Holland, we applied the general presumption of equitable tolling to AEDPA's one-year statute of limitations for state prisoners' habeas claims. Afterward, in McQuigan v. Perkins, 2013, we held that a convincing showing of actual innocence could enable a prisoner to evade AEDPA's statute of limitations entirely. Undoubtedly, McQuigan's assertion of equitable authority to override clear statutory text was a bold one, but even taking Holland and McQuigan for all they are worth There is a significant difference between reading equitable exceptions into a statute of limitations on the one hand and demanding a clear statement before foreclosing workarounds to AEDPA's second or successive restrictions on the other. Statutes of limitations merely govern the time frame for bringing a claim. AEDPA's second or successive restrictions, by contrast, constitute a modified race judicata rule, and thus embody Congress's judgment regarding the central policy question of post-conviction remedies, the appropriate balance between finality and error correction. Insisting on a heightened standard of clarity in this context would effectively mean adopting a presumption against finality as a substantive value. We decline to do so, The United States has an interest in the finality of sentences imposed by its own courts, and how to balance that interest against error correction is a judgment about the proper scope of the writ that is normally for Congress to make. Accepting the government's proposal to apply a clear statement rule would be particularly anomalous in light of the precise question this case presents. Typically, we find clear statement rules appropriate when a statute implicates historically or constitutionally grounded norms that we would not expect Congress to unsettle lightly. But as shown above in discussing Jones's suspension clause argument, there is no historical or constitutional norm of permitting one convicted of a crime by a court of competent jurisdiction to collaterally attack his sentence based on an alleged error of substantive statutory law. As far as history and the Constitution are concerned, there is nothing incongruous about a system in which this kind of error, the application of a since-rejected statutory interpretation, cannot be remedied after final judgment." Off fortiori, there is nothing fundamentally surprising about Congress declining to make such errors remediable in a second or successive collateral attack. We affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode. Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.